listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. It's Friday morning, April 24th, 2020, here in Seoul. And joining me in my studio is my guest today, Michael Breen, Chairman of Public Relations Firm Insight Communications Consultants in Seoul, where, full disclosure, I work part-time. So he is, in fact, my boss, or one of them. Uh, before moving into the world of the PR flack, he was once a journalist and is also the author of Kim Jong-il, North Korea's Dear Leader, which was originally published in January 2004 and then revised and updated in November 2011, just about a month before Kim Jong-il's death. Good timing. And he's also author of The Koreans, published in 1998, and the completely rewritten sequel, rather than a second edition, The New Koreans, published in April 2017. Thanks for coming on the show, Michael. It's a pleasure, Jacko. And today we'll be talking about some history here, almost ancient history, uh, about your time as a journalist covering North Korea from your base here in Seoul and your many trips uh, to North Korea. So regular listeners to the podcast will know that we, we do like to talk about time-sensitive news-related topics, such as, for example, the rumors that are swirling around right now about Kim Jong-un's state of health. Uh, but we also do like to delve into a little bit of North Korean history, and that's what we'll be doing today. So you first came here to South Korea as a journalist in which year? 1982. 82, okay. And then when did you first visit North Korea? Uh, 1989. So seven years uh, of, of being here in Seoul and you went to North Korea. Uh, you weren't, of course, the first journalist to visit North Korea or even the first to meet uh, Kim Il-sung. That latter title, I think, goes to Anna Louise Strong, who back in the 1940s, published a slim booklet, which was basically a transcription of her interview with uh, Kim Il-sung. But many books with titles like Answers to the Questions Raised by Foreign Journalists had been published by the Pyongyang Foreign Languages Publishing House since at least 1970. I've got a, a copy of that in my library. And in 1972, both the New York Times and the Washington Post had interviews with Kim Il-sung published in one of those kinds of books. But you were possibly the first journalist from a newspaper owned by um, a very staunchly anti-communist organization you, that you worked for the Washington Times, owned by the Unification Church, led by the late Reverend Sun Myung-moon. So how did that come about, that you were invited to North Korea as a journalist? I went uninvited. Oh. Um, the uh, history of, say, Western journalists, and a distinction is made, I think, that, that, that those sort of books you cited, you know, that produced in Pyongyang, the great leader answers questions from foreign journalists. This is th these would be nothing like what we would consider a press conference or an interview. Um, uh, and I believe I'm not sure if it was the Washington Post and the New York Times. I think it was one of them in 1972. Yeah, one one was in May and one was in June. And they're in the same book. Are you sure? Both, yeah, I both checked papers. It last night. Can you remember the name? It's not Harrison Salisbury. Can you remember his name? Um, I didn't check the names, so I'm afraid, no. Don Oberdorfer. No, I can't remember who it was. It'll come to me. Um, and apart, <clears throat> apart from a, a Korean-American lady who was based in um, uh, Washington, D.C., called Moon, I forget who she, who she contributed to now. She interviewed him, I believe. But apart from that, then the Washington Times in 1992 was the uh, second or third interview Kim Il-sung gave to uh, Western media. Mm. And that was you in 1992? Uh, no. Well, well, it should. I'll tell you that story in a minute. Ah. It should have been me, but it wasn't. Uh, so how come I got invited? Okay, let, let, let me just uh, wind it back a little bit and 
tell you how I went the first time. What happened was um, in 1988, 89. Okay, so the year of the Olympics in Seoul, 88, and the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students in 89. Yeah. So in at that time, I'd been here for seven years, which for a foreign correspondent is long enough. And uh, probably in those days, a little bit too long. Uh, because a foreign correspondent, if they're concerned about their career, uh, wants to move around. And Seoul was a, uh, a tend to be a sort of a, a bureau, a place for the upwardly ambitious, so that you would want to go to Hong Kong, Tokyo, London, Paris, uh, Washington, New York, somewhere like that. And so we had the uh, we we were really a story. In other words, if you were here writing for a Western newspaper, you would get into the paper almost every week through 1987, through mm. the democratization period. And even earlier, because the, the, the Korean uh, anti-government protests always uh, were very visual and very, you know, so essentially we wrote about demos all the time. Right, especially in spring and summer. Spring, yes. Demo season. Indeed. Um, and then you had the Olympic Games in 1988, after that, we dropped right off the map, right? Because Western media could only, and if you imagine the old days, the physical newspaper, yep. uh, the foreign pages, and foreign news never sold newspapers very well. So there was only limited space for Asia stories. So Korea dropped off the pages. So I, I and my friends all left. They all moved on, uh, and I was wondering uh, what to do with myself. And I realized that I had zero interest in other places. I had zero interest in, I was offered a post back at head office in Washington. I had zero interest in working in a newspaper. What do I do? And I decided to focus on the North Korea issue. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1980, I think it was 87, uh, North Korea lifted its restrictions on uh, Western tourists. It still had restrictions on Americans, uh, but not on uh, other Western tourists. And there was a group of uh, journalists went in around that time. So I thought, okay, I might be writing for an American newspaper, but I'm a British citizen, so how about that? I, so this is in 87, was it? And you tried no, to join... No, this, this was in late 88 I started thinking ah. about this. After the Olympics, I, right. when I was thinking about do I stay or not, and I thought, um, no, I'll... Uh, I will. I won't leave. I'll stay, but I need to focus on North Korea. So, um, how about going there? And I talked with another correspondent who was uh, a South African lady for the working for the Independent, the British newspaper. At the time that I was thinking about this, a friend of mine who had left Korea, a photographer, was now living in Hong Kong, was visiting, and he wandered into my office, and I just um, told him what I was thinking about, and he said, "Oh, can I come?" So there was three of us. And then the South African journalist um, had talked to a Belgian businessman. He wasn't a journalist, but he was very curious. And he said, oh, can I come? So there were four of us. Huh. You mentioned in your introduction that my newspaper was owned by uh, the, the famous uh, Reverend Sun Myung Moon of Mooney's fame. Yes. He, he was actually in Seoul around this time I was thinking about this. So I, I went to, and, and I thought, okay, if I do something like this, are there repercussions if something goes wrong? 
So I... Uh, when, when you say something going wrong, are you thinking about being detained or uh, yeah. an accident and being killed or hurt in North Korea? Well, I thought if being killed uh, might be a bit sort of a, of a disincentive, but uh, sometimes you have to... Uh, well, see, basically, I wasn't an employee of the Washington Times. Ah, like a freelancer. I, I was. Stringer. They called me a super stringer. That's so right. I was effectively <laughs> an employee without the benefits. That's yep. how it worked. I didn't think about asking permission at all from the newspaper. I was like my own man in that sense. But I wondered if there were any other significant uh, repercussions, almost like from a diplomatic point of view. So I went to talk to uh, Reverend Moon himself, mm. said, look, I'm thinking of doing this. Um, what do you think? And he was quite excited about it. And he said, but, you know, this could be dangerous for you know he said you got to think about this he said so go in a group he suggested the group and I said yeah well uh, you know I couldn't go as an individual anyway I think we're thinking of going as tourists and so you have to be a group he said okay and he's and he said um you write you, you write for other newspapers don't you he, he said you write for the guardian which I was I was also the guardian correspondent super stringer. okay um, well, I was a super stringer for the Washington Times. That was kind of my identity in Korea, but I also was the correspondent here for the Guardian, ah. and I was a contributor to papers like the Australian and the South China Morning Post. So he said, you know, you should probably go as the Guardian, not as the Washington Times. Um, what uh, what I decided was um, that we wouldn't go as journalists at all. Our little fib was that. Uh, Ron, the photographer, Ron McMillan, uh, had a company in Hong Kong called Echo, yeah. which is his photography company. Ah. So, so we were all employees of ah, Echo. Okay. We didn't sort of massively tell lies, but we just had that little fib in the background. So we were as tourists. We went as tourists, you know. So uh, off we go to North Korea. Now, when you went to see uh, Reverend Moon, as well as working for one of his newspapers, you were also a member of the organization, weren't you? Right. And so did you go to see him in your capacity as a journalist or in a capacity as a member of the church or a bit of both? I had a friend who, uh, an American friend, who was married to one of his nieces who told me that uh, the, the, rule, the protocol is... Um, once you've been introduced to him, you you are then free to just go and see him, which is an interesting yeah. concept. Uh, and I had been introduced to him at some point, I think the the earlier that year, by the president of the Washington Times. Um, as, oh, this guy is our correspondent here. You know, that was it. And so I thought, why not? So I actually literally went and rang the bell wow. and got invited in for breakfast. You know, as probably some people might think it was a bit cheeky because it's like going to the big sort of chairman of the group type yeah, right. of thing um, as a low-level employee. But there was nobody there to kind of um, butt in because I was kind of my own boss, you see. There's yep. no one to butt in and say, oh, you should have asked me first. Right. Yeah. yeah, okay. And and then it came about eventually that you said you you were going there almost once or twice a year up until 95 um that's true yeah what what um, the sequence of events was after that first trip uh we came out wrote our stories um in those days i'd send the same story to the washington times and the guardian right. because left because there was no internet 
Um, no, no. I mean, uh, left and right had no difference of opinion about North Korea. Ah. Now, now you have pro-engagement, pro-hardline, and pro-bombing. Right. You know, so you get very different um, uh, sort of philosophical, political uh, angles on this. But in those days, it was all the same. Yeah. We were all anti-North Korean. Even people who pretended to be pro-North Korean deep down were anti-North Korean. You know, so. Um, you send exactly the same stories. Um, so I, we came out, wrote the stories, tried to go back next year. And by the way, the timing of this is um, April 15th, Kim Il-sung's birthday, which is Christmas Day in North Korea. So that's the time to go. And that's when you were there in 89? That's when, the first time in 89, okay. yeah. In fact, I forget which day it was. I'll tell you, though, what it was, was um, when we went in, the students in Beijing, we waited three days for a visa in yeah. Beijing. The students uh, were assembling after Hu Yabang had died yes. uh, in Tiananmen Square. And by the time we came out a week later, that was a full-blown, you know, there was thousands of them. Yeah. Right. It, it, took, it obviously time. took some time, you know, to build up before the, the Chinese government decided to do that crackdown. And there was that visit by Gorbachev in the middle as well. So yeah. it was all happening from April and that was when you were there. Yeah, and the crackdown, I think, was June, June 4th. June, yeah. June 4th, yeah. Yeah, so, um, the second, so the second, you applied to go again and got rejected. Now, when you applied the second time, was that also as a tourist? Or as a, as a tourist, okay, yeah, yeah, as a tourist. Uh, and the message back was, and by the way, we went, the tour was arranged by a British agency called Regent Tours that specialized in trips to weird and wonderful places. Huh. Um and they had a connection with the North Korean, uh, I forget which tour agency it was, the state-run, where everything started. KITC? I think it was a youth travel oh, or something okay. like yeah, that, yeah, if yeah. I remember correctly. So the message came back, um, oh, you you are not tourists, you are journalists. Right, which is and, yeah, fair which enough. Which you thought, oh, how, do you know, how did you know that? You <laughs> know? And Ron, and, and Ron uh, you'll remember, uh, my friend from Hong Kong. Yeah, the photojournalist, yep said, um, oh, I've just seen, in fact, he sent me something. Um, how did it work in those days? It must have been by fax. He said, there's an interesting story from the local papers. There was a small a brief about a uh, company based in Hong Kong started up by a Korean-American uh, to do trade and tourism with North Korea. And he's, he says, do you want me to ask her? Uh, so, so, yeah, you might as well. I mean, we've been rejected. Let's see what she says. Do you remember her name, this Korean-American? Park Kyung-yoon. Uh-huh. She became quite famous. Is she still with us? She's still with us, yes. She, she, she's another podcast. In fact, you should get her on here, Jacko. She's fascinating. I'd love to get her on. If someone can help me uh, get in touch with her. So uh, we'll, we'll, let's see if we can do that. Mm. The, she said yes. And uh, so there we were. Off, off we were again. By chance, as Mrs. Park happened to be in North Korea at the same time, she and I just hit it off. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure why, but we, we just hit it off um, and became very close friends. And so every subsequent trip was under her auspices. Yep. And she had a direct line to Kim Il-sung. Really? Was, was completely trusted by mm. the North Koreans. And she had benefited from, you will remember that No Tae-u, the president, the first democratically elected president of Korea. He had the Nord politic. Uh, his, in his Nord politic, the key feature of that was that, that South Korea would no longer penalize 
ah. um, non-South Koreans. Like Korean-Americans, for example. Particularly overseas Koreans yeah. who travel to North Korea or deal with North Korea. They would no longer be considered as communists uh-huh. or pro-communists, right. which is what they were before. Yep. Uh, a little incident to illustrate that. When I uh, came back after the first trip, I bumped into an elderly gentleman I knew called Speedy Lee. Oh, yeah. Who, have you but, heard of Speedy Lee, the general? St- Steve Tharp wrote his biography. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah. I've got to get hold of that. Yes. He was a character and a half. He, he was one of the founding generals of the South Korean army <gasps> and a real character, much beloved by the Americans, always appeared after his retirement, always appeared at all of these receptions and events. So Speedy, and but I bump into him in Mugyodong in, in Seoul. Yeah. And he's and I say, you never guess where I've just been. And he says, what is that? I said, i just come back from Pyongyang. You want to see my pictures? Ah. He wouldn't look at the pictures. And he said to me, he, he's, I could see the confusion in his face, like, oh, I'm a, you're a foreigner. And ah. um, he knew me well enough to know that I wasn't a communist. And he, so he made some joke about, oh, we'll have to check you're not a spy or something. It was a joke. <laughs> but it was the first thing that went into his mind. And you nice. know, that generation, yep. anybody who said anything nice about North Korea was assumed to be a communist yep. and accused there. She was one of the first uh, people, a non-communist, to be sort of embraced, if you like, by the North Koreans. She, she, uh, Park Kyung-yoon. Did she have an English name as well? Um, no, not that I'm aware of. Um, and she she was American citizen, mm-hmm. South Korean born American citizen, um, very wealthy. Um, and she put a lot of money. She put about $15 million into North Korea, in fact, created a bank to put her own money in. Um, wow. And it was that kind of gesture that made her trusted yeah, yeah. by the North Koreans. So she, what she was trying to do was her bit for reconciliation right. was to... Uh, encouraged tourism business and she invited she was the person behind most of the south korean uh chebol trips to north oh, korea so when and things went like to that. Nampo, Dewey, she, for was, example. she was involved, she was involved Dewey, in that. Okay. yeah and um <clears throat> lots of things like that so so we kind of hit it off and ever since then she protected so she protected me so i i came out of north korea each time wrote my stories as i saw fit yeah uh, didn't care what the North Koreans thought, didn't think about the next trip. Right. Uh, and she would always turn to the North Koreans and say, oh, come on, this guy's just a bloody Western journalist. What do you expect? Let him in again, effectively. So um, by the, I think my third trip, uh, I'm just trying to remember now, I, I think my third trip I went as a tourist, but by the fourth, but subsequently it was as a journalist. Uh, I know what it was. It was the third trip was pretending to be a tourist but actually being a journalist and they all knew we were journalists and they treated us like journalists. Ah. On one of these trips, Mike, to uh, to Pyongyang, you actually saw the late Reverend Billy Graham give a sermon, didn't you? I did, yeah. So uh, tell us about that. Uh, I, I knew he was um, I knew he was there. The North Koreans have been courting it. By the way, the, this is going back to the... Early 1990s. Early 1990s. But fall of the Berlin Wall was, what, 89? 89, 89 right? yeah. Um, that whole events moved very, very rapidly then. And the Soviet Union uh, not only... Disbanded in 92? Disba- uh, even before the formal disbanding, ah. um, the Soviet Union stopped its friendship pricing yeah, with yeah. North Korea, which meant the North Koreans had to pay proper money Real money, for yeah. things. Um, so they were no longer subsidized. And the North Koreans, what Kim Il-sung had been very, very good at was balancing off the Chinese and the Soviets against each other. 
that you know he would go to the Chinese and say, "Look, the Soviets are giving us free oil. You know, what do you say to that?" Mm, okay, we'll give you rice then, or whatever. Right. And then he go to the Soviets and do the same thing. That was how he managed a, a foreign policy at the same time while appearing to his own people to be vigorously independent. Mm. Um, and when one side of that triangle um, sort of collapsed. Yep. Um, they they immediately wanted to f- to put the Americans in that play. Ah, so they they to play the Americans off against the Chinese yeah, and vice versa. Yeah. yeah. So they wanted diplomatic relations with America and an an embassy yep. in Pyongyang back from about ninety one or so. Right. Um, and so part of that was inviting uh, people like Jimmy Carter and. Uh, various figures including billy graham mm-hmm. See, this is a way of signaling because in a way if you look historically the, the north koreans anti-americanism or i beg your pardon the north koreans anti-religion anti-christianity is based less on a commitment to atheism a kind of a less on marxism and more on the korean war and the idea that Christians are pro-American and therefore they're spies. So inviting Billy Graham would be a signal to say, "Look, times have changed." Uh-huh. So Billy Graham accepted. So I knew he was there. I wasn't I actually. I, did I know he was there? Um, I knew it was on the cards. I wasn't sure if he was actually in Pyongyang or not. But I thought I would go to this Pongsu Kyohe, which at that time was one of well, was the only uh, Protestant, Protestant show yeah. church in Pyongyang. Yeah. Yeah. And um, see what it was like because I'd read um, stories about it. Uh, Peter Maas, the Washington Post, he was kind of my opposite number here. He was their sort of super stringer in Seoul. He had um, made a wonderful point where he he had gone to this church and after the service, he uh, interviewed some some of the churchgoers mm-hmm. and just sort of randomly asked them to name. Three books of the Bi- three books of the Bible, right. and none of them could. Ah. Uh, so I, that made me curious. I thought, mm, I'll go to this. And Lowen- now, was it because Billy Graham visited twice? Once in ninety two, and once in ninety four, just a few months before uh, yeah. Kim Il Sung died. So was this the ninety two? This visit? is ninety two. Okay, yeah. And, uh, March, and I should point I out that remember. Billy Graham's wife uh, Ruth was was a, a former student of the uh, Pyongyang Foreign School, so she had grown up in Pyongyang. Mm, I think she was born there. May even be more because um, her parents were mission. Parents were missionaries in China, yeah. though, not to Korea. Ah, okay. Um, but he he mentioned that in his sermon. He mm. mentioned that. And uh, anyway, lo and behold, uh, going to this church, it's packed. A packed. I say it's not that big, but a lot of people there. So a couple of hundred, maybe three hundred. Mm. And Billy Graham is there. Yeah, just by coincidence, you didn't know he was. Yeah, gonna I didn't be know he was going to okay. be there. So, and I must say, I mean, I'm I'm not sort of uh, enthused by. Uh, evangelical Christianity, um, but I must say I was impressed. He was very, very good, um, and he knew who his audience was. These were people posing as Christians, and not simply, um, you know, Mr. Kim, the actor, pretending to be devout. It right. was, it was, I believe, that these were people who maybe were um, the grandchildren of Christians ah, and yes. things like that, who were party members right and so um they may have even in some sense thought of themselves as christians um 
But uh, anyway, but he knew he was talking to people who didn't believe. He gave them Christianity 101. The way he did it was very, very impressive. He he spoke in short sentences. He'd, he started off by saying something like, uh, yesterday I met with the old leader. And I want to say uh, I was very impressed. I told him I was very impressed by this city of Pyongyang. And I want you to know that I have a special affection for your city because my wife went to school here. Uh -huh. you know, things like this. Yeah. And interspersed in those phrases, just like I gave it, was the interpretation by Steve Linton. Right. Who comes from a, a missionary family, a, a career-based missionary family? Well, that's right. His, his grandfather was uh, uh, Eugene Bell, who was uh, somehow either a brother or a cousin of uh, of Ruth Bell, who uh, was Billy Graham's wife. So, so there was a. I didn't know that actually. There was a. That's interesting. There's a, a family connection. So Linton. Um, so he he would say yesterday I met with your leader. And then Paul and and Linton would sort of say, "Yesterday he met with the, I met with your lead. You know, he'd say that in Korean. Uh -huh. And when he started, the the audience gasped because they'd never seen a foreigner speak Korean like this before. Yeah, and I think doesn't he have a Cholado accent or something? He does. He, the, 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 the Lintons have proud Hornam people. Yeah, so it's if you imagine the the Cholado people are Scots, it'd be like yesterday <laughs> uh, I had a wonderful meeting with your leader. Yes, he had a wonderful meeting with your leader. You know, it was. It was kind of like that. It was very fluid, right? And he, 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 he. As I say, he was very, very impressive, and um, so that was uh, quite memorable. Wow! Now you did also um, uh, later on somehow become a, a facilitator for a, a meeting between Reverend Moon and Kim Il Sung, didn't you? Um, I did. That was that was by um, chance in. Uh, in 1990, see, uh, Moon was North Korean born. The Moon was from uh, Chongju ah. in, in uh, uh, Pyongyangbukto, which is the northwest mm -hmm. province of North Korea. Uh, had, had escaped uh, during the Korean War to South Korea. He he was, um, as you know, I mean, controversial as a messianic um, type figure, mm. very uh, disliked widely, particularly by Christians and was disliked um, a lot around the world because for his anti-communism. The thing, though, that became apparent that he was a Korean type of anti-communist, which is slightly different from an American anti-communist. And he, how can I explain this? He wasn't an ideological anti-communist. He was against communism because of its atheism and didn't bother too much with the rest. And once the communism was on the ropes... He was perfectly willing to embrace them and so on. And so in 1990, he held an event in Moscow, a media event, had a big media association. Big wow, that's quite early in the piece. And, uh, and met, had a meeting with Gorbachev. And this astonished his American anti-communist friends. So what's he playing at? You know? Right. He told his people in Moscow, I want to go to Pyongyang. They set about trying to uh, set this up through various channels. I believe a group um, went immediately to the North Korean embassy in uh, Moscow and was shown the door because uh, he was seen as um, the devil incarnate by oh, the yeah. North Koreans. You know? <laughs> they tried several attempts, I believe, over about 
18 months when uh, and and I happened to I went to meet the president of the Washington Times who was in uh, uh, Seoul at the time and he said uh, oh, he said I got this headache he said I'm under pressure to try and uh, sort this trip out he wants he wants to go to North Korea but you know the North Koreans don't want him we've tried every which way I said uh, oh would you like and and I was the only person that he knew had actually ever been there uh, he said you got any ideas I, and I said do you want me to have a crack at this he said yeah you know um I sent uh, a telex I think or was it was no a fax I think we were in fax mode by then to Mrs Park I said would you be interested in this and she got back to me in 24 hours and said, very keen. Hmm. And she had, meanwhile, uh, run it by the deputy prime minister in North Korea. Wow. Now, she's based in D.C., right? She, she was Hong Kong. No, Hong she was Kong. in Hong Kong at that time. Okay. All right. So you're in Seoul. You fax her in Hong Kong. She calls somebody in Pyongyang and then gets back to you in Seoul. So yeah. she's also a, yeah. kind of a middle yeah. person. Yeah. Uh, inter now, interestingly, this little process, by the way, took – a little bit longer and what I she later told me was the deputy prime minister in question Kim Dalhyun either he or he had somebody take Moon's photograph to a, a fortune teller in, in North, North Korea. Korea and the fortune teller who didn't know who he was presumably huh. looked at his face and huh. declared that this man is good for Korea that's when the message came back saying okay I I put the president of the Washington Times together with her and then you know it's like you sort of pass on the contact type of thing and didn't think any more of it right um and uh three weeks later he was in north korea so she set the whole thing up uh-huh okay so you you simply put them in contact yeah yeah and that led to this uh great rapprochement between uh, the unification church and and the north korean leadership it did. And, and, yeah. and to this uh, uh investment in business ventures the botonggang hotel Potonggang Hotel. Pyongyang Motors. One, yeah, Pyongyang Motors. The creation of Pyongyang Motors. Um, what else was it? They were the first to bring CNN into North Korea. Ah. Um, and there was some other uh, venture that had later the Japanese Unification Church, I believe, put a lot of money into Moon's hometown and took tourists there. But the if you go back to, well, why did that happen? I mean, what what's the... This is anti-communist guys seen as a big enemy. Well, you know, why would the North Korea? And again, you have to go back to um, Korean communism is not really Marxist. It's not sort of uh, based on that sort of philosophy. It's right. more. It was more a tool used to gain independence. Yeah, um, so it's more of so a nationalism. Then. It's more of a nationalism, and, and thereby um, can be very flexible. Can be sort of. You know, one editorial in the chose in the Nodong Shimun, and you can chuck it out the window. The reason that I believe that uh, the Unification Church was embraced at that time was that you know I had mentioned earlier about the need for ties with America. Well, the Washington Times was uh, you know Moon was seen through the Washington Times and and other means uh -huh. as having big connections in America. Right, access um, to Washington, especially well, okay, not when Clinton was in power, but anyway, certainly to the to, to the, the well, Republicans. It's yeah, and uh, yeah. And at the same time, the a lot of the North Korean foreign uh, foreign currency for North Korea came via Chosen Soren, right, Chochongyun, the the, the uh, Japanese based or Japan based Koreans. That's right, the Residents Association, and the Japanese government had had been sort of uh, 
closing that one off. The they weren't getting the funds that they were used. So I I believe the prime reason was that they wanted the Unification Church to replace, uh-huh. you know, or to fill that gap at yep. least, you know, perhaps not replace because that's that's the wrong word, but at least uh, to provide the money that they, you know, were not getting any longer. Right. So Moon uh, went to North Korea and. At the end of his trip, he, by the way, that itself is very interesting. You should try and get somebody to tell you about this. I mean, I know, as I said, I know he's an unpopular character, but he's kind of very colorful and unusual, and he totally misbehaved on that trip. Reverend Moon did. Yeah. For example, the I think on their second day, uh, they were invited. Now you weren't there for this, I, right? So you, well, you... I should have been, but I wasn't. I should have been because... Park Bohee, who was the president of the Washington Times. Right, and also uh, founder of the Little Angels. Uh, all of that. School. School, yeah. yeah. All of that. He um, Famous from the Koreagate hearings and, uh, and Congress. That's right. He uh, he was sort of root, Moon's uh, right-hand or left-hand man. Mm. Politically right, probably, so right-hand man. Uh, he he rang me up and said, Mike, is your, is your passport in order? I said, yeah. Uh, have you got a visa for China? No, but I can get one. Um, right, can you, tomorrow night, can I meet you in the uh, Conrad Hotel in Hong Kong? I thought, okay. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going on a trip. Huh. Oh, okay. Is it where I think it is? He said, just be there. Right. So uh, there was 30 other people there. At the Conrad Hotel? Uh, yeah. Um, I thought, oh, what are you doing here? What's going on? You know, oh, we're flying to Beijing tomorrow. You know, so anyway, it wasn't until I saw Mrs. Park about two days later in the airport in Beijing. Park I, yeah, that I put two and two. I, I said, wait, I asked her, I said, Blimey, what, why are you here? And she said, what are you talking about? You set this up. And that's when it all fell into ah. place. It was all a bit mysterious. Yeah. Uh, so this whole group of about 30 people was supposed to go into North Korea. But the North Koreans uh, organization hosting Moon was the uh, committee, the party committee that's responsible for dealing with overseas Koreans, presided over by Kim Yong Soon, if I remember, the party right, I was, secretary. I was going to come to so, you. So uh, they declared they didn't want non Koreans. So, yeah, Kim Yong Soon was vice chairman of the Committee for the Peaceful Reunification of the Fatherland. It's an offshoot of the Korean Workers' Party United Front Department, which is, yeah, it, 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 it's for South Koreans. Okay. So, yeah. I was wrong. It was it was for the South Koreans, and so they didn't want us. So we ah. stayed in a hotel in Beijing for a week, the China World Hotel, ah. and waited till they came out and heard all the stories when they came out. So you know, I heard got a download from Park Bo Hee later. Yeah. And on their second day, their committee they were invited to the Supreme People's Assembly in a meeting room with the committee, and there were speeches and stuff. And then Moon stands up and starts giving them a, a talk about why, how Juche, uh, their presiding ideology, Juche, is rubbish and why they need God, that their atheism is, you know, why nothing's going right in North Korea. And uh, Kim Jong-soon, the vice chairman, leant over to Park Bo-hee and whispered in his ear, can you shut him up? Because people get executed in this country for saying things like that. But Bohee sort of looks at him and shrugs his shoulders and says, I can't shut him up. Right, you he's know? my leader. And he basically behaved like that through the whole trip. Now, in the way those things used to, used to go uh, in North Korea was a visitor 
If a visitor was going to meet Kim Il-sung, it was always on the last day. Yeah. The idea was that um, you'd get a thorough briefing and you'd see things about the country so that you could then say to Kim Il-sung, you'd have a certain familiarity and say, right. what a wonderful place. Yeah, I've been very impressed by what I've seen. Exactly, yeah. and stuff like that. So the night they arrived, Moon had given a speech essentially along the theme of blood is thicker than water. We, we may have our differences, but we have Korean blood and we should dedicate ourselves to unification, you know, let the businessmen do business, let the politicians do their bit and stuff like that. And Kim Il-sung was given a transcript of this that night and was very impressed and said it should be in the Nodong Shimbun, the newspaper. And so Kim Il-sung said he wanted to meet, I want to meet this guy. Uh-huh. So in that intervening week, his subordinates, uh, Mrs. Park told me all of this, his subordinates were um, trying to dissuade the great leader from meeting Moon. But uh, he said, no, no, no I'm, I, huh. the, the blood is thick and water. I really like that. I want to meet this guy. Right. Of course, when Moon, and it, this is the old trick, you see, when, Moon, when Moon's in front of Kim Il-sung, he behaved like an angel and he even um, made a point of, of telling Kim Il-sung, uh, of praising the guys who'd been looking after him and saying they've done a great job, they've really uh, explained your country well and right. I think you've got very good people here. And so everyone was relaxed. Mm. As I say, I, I should have been on that, um, but wasn't... But th- that meeting went well then? Oh, it went very well, yeah. And they... It, it, they got on well. It, they so got they on well. Leader to leader, they sort of understood what kindred spirits... They got spirits. on well. I mean, there's, there's a picture of them walking along a corridor together holding hands. Holding hands, You know, yeah. remember Koreans used to do... They don't mm-hmm. do that anymore. They... No. Korean men sort of holding hands. Um, there was, uh, on the side of that, there was some business talk like, okay, well, h- how can we cooperate? You know, our two leaders have got on well. Right. What does this all mean? Right. So, and one of the first, uh, or, or the, f- the key project that was talked about, which the North Koreans proposed and was accepted, was the Kumgangsan development. I was about to ask which, you about that. Which uh, yeah. later, as you know, famously became, was handed Hyundai over Asan. to Hyundai yeah. because the Unification Church ran out of money, basically. So uh, so they started it in the beginning, did they? I don't know if Chung Ji-yong of Hyundai, who had been to North Korea, I believe in 89, the year before Moon, I don't know if... He had suggested it, the North Koreans had suggested it to him, or it, but I believe it had come up. But uh, the North Koreans um, actually, with Moon, formed a company, yep. a Hong Kong-based company, 40% North Korea, 40% Unification Church, 20% Mrs. Park. Ah, and yeah. She was the chairwoman. Okay. And all the money, the North Koreans provide the land, the Unification Church provides the money, Mrs. Park runs it. Right. That's how it was set up. Yep. And and I was actually introduced a couple of years later to North Koreans in Beijing, to my su- own surprise, yeah. as the spokesman for the Kumgangsan Development <laughs> Project. <laughs> Wait, what? You this didn't even when, know this? This is when I was no longer a journalist. No, ah. I, this is her way of doing things. You know? Okay. So I so just she said, by the way, this is Mike Brand, the spokesman for the uh, yeah. for the Kumgangsan Tourism Project. Yeah. So, oh, am I? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. so that was your beginning of of, uh, of PR. Uh, in, yeah, it was yeah, actually. Uh, ironically, um, the one and one of the other things that Moon asked Kim Il Sung about, he said, "You know, I have this newspaper in Washington. W- could I send my uh, journal? Could I? Sorry, could I? Could I uh, send the journalists yep. here?" And for him, 
he said later, this was very, uh, Kim Il-sung said yes. Yeah. Um, for him, this was very important because Moon, unlike a lot of other people with North Korea who, who get very sort of excited, when access is very, very difficult and you're one of the few people getting the access, you get overcome with excitement. It's quite thrilling and it makes you feel intensely important. Yeah. And you give away stuff. You know, the North Koreans essentially wanted Unification Church money. Uh, Moon was a bit more canny than that. Um, and he um, uh, he said later that uh, this idea of sending the journalists there was very important to him because he... He wanted to see if the North Korean. He knew that would make them feel uncomfortable, yeah. and he wanted to see how, you know, if they were actually quite serious. In the end, he concluded, despite the investment, uh, after a couple of years, he concluded that they weren't serious; that they were just trying to suck uh, resources, suck money out of, the, the, and and not provide any access. Right. Um, so he sort of. Uh, stopped funding the North Korean venture, really. Now, on one of these trips, you, your guide um, was actually the son of uh, this gentleman you mentioned earlier, Kim Jong-sun, am I right? He, yeah, the, he, the, was, the vice chairman he was of the... actually my guide on two trips. Ah. I didn't know who he was until later. Um, there was uh, I was told by someone who lived in Pyongyang later, and then that explained everything because... Um, he behaved completely differently from the other North Koreans. You mean more relaxed? Much more relaxed, very confident. He would say things that would get other people arrested. We, you mean like slightly subversive sounding things? Well, we critical we, things. We were once um, sitting around uh, having a meal, sitting on the floor, yeah. sort of talking about stuff, and uh, he said, "You know, um, I, th I thought of defecting, but um, you know." What do I want? Do I want to be a, like a taxi driver in Cuba or in Seoul or somewhere? Um, when here, you know, I'm I've got an important job. Right. Like I'm meeting you. Yeah, yeah. And it's like the the other North Koreans with him, even his technically his bosses. Yeah. You sort of look at them and say, "No, you're not going to say the same no. thing, are you?" Um, so he, there was something different about him. And uh, of course, on on a, the, that Washington Times trip, his father—I ah. didn't know it was his father—was our host at the end of the trip. When this we is thought, the twelve-day trip when you thought you were going to meet Kim, but didn't. Yeah, we were told, "Oh, we got a special dinner coming up," and ah. we we to the last minute we thought it was Kim Il Sung, right? And then it was him. Ah, it was Kim uh, Yong Sun, yeah, the vice chairman of the uh, the who, committee for the peaceful unification of the fatherland. Yeah, who got us totally rat faced, drunk. Ah, um, the way that they do if you're not careful. Uh, just before we get to my last trip, the 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 trip after that. Whoops. Oh, I know what. Yeah, and then when I went back to North Korea after the failed interview. Yep. Not the, the one where you arrived and and the interview had already happened. Yeah, and you no, had to the, write interview, the, story. the interview had been done. Um, so I got over that. Uh, Josette flies home. You write the story that I night. I write the story. And then in a day or two, th this is when there's a whole bunch of journalists come are in for um, Kim Il-sung's uh, birthday. There's a whole bunch. There's like about 100 or 200. They really opened up that year. Was this um, in 92? Because that would have been, have been Kim, Kim Il-sung's 80th birthday then. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah, 90, so his 80th it must birthday, have been. yeah. The Washington Times interview with Kim Il-sung came out and it was a full-page Q&A. It wasn't... I mean, I had to write a 
sort of cover story for the front right. page, but the inside was the whole Q&A. And the photos of him were generous. They didn't show his the big goiter he had on his neck. They were very generous. And um, the North Koreans were thrilled. You know, I was sort of the hero, treated like the hero of the day by the North Koreans because uh, I was the representative of the paper. The, the, the next time we went in, in April 94... By for the eighty second birthday, yeah, that that was uh, the uh, that was the only time I went in that was more well, it wasn't Unification Church exactly, but the Unification Church had an organisation of former prime ministers and former heads of states of country, uh-huh. and they took a delegation of these former heads of state to North Korea. They attached to it Washington Times, CNN, and NHK. There was about twenty of us all together. The former There was a former governor general of Canada, I think a former prime minister of Egypt, a former prime minister of Costa Rica, one or two American academics. Yeah. And we we had a group interview with Kim Il-sung and then a a lunch with him. The whole thing started, uh, the whole thing lasted three and a half hours uh, on April the 16th. And the reason we got that was that year, 94. Yeah. North Korea was essentially being boycotted. I mean, its Eastern European allies had sort of disappeared. Nobody cared. And even the Chinese weren't amused by them because of the nuclear issue and sent a low-level delegation. So uh, lo and behold, we were the highest-ranking foreign delegation in the country. So we got this. um, So I eventually got got with Kim Ah. Il-sung, but in in a group of uh, others on his last uh, birthday because it was only what, three months before he died he yeah. died three months later yeah. right and but you went back uh, in 95 um so after he died and that was an interesting trip the last one i want to hear about that before we wrap up the interview because okay. that, it's, it's got to do with a, a topic very near and dear to my heart which is wrestling so around that time in my last interview i was uh, i i'd actually got a bit fed up and I was offered a job uh, consulting on North Korea, which um, uh, I put all. I thought about this for a few weeks and then took it. So I, I gave up journalism. And one of my first clients was uh, Coca-Cola. Huh. Ironically, so they made me their point man. I mean, they would get people coming out. They would get people all the time, particularly overseas Koreans, right. coming to them in Atlanta, their headquarters, saying, oh, I've been given the rights to North Korea by the North Koreans to sell Coca-Cola. And they say, oh, really? Yeah. And so they would send all these people to me. And uh, they asked me to develop a strategy for them for when it opens up, when the Americans lift the Trading with the Enemy Act, uh, what do we do? So I took these two people based in Japan the vice president of the Japanese, he, he was a New Zealander, a lawyer, and a Japanese technical person. They're to, working for Coca-Cola in, in Japan. In Japan. They, at that time, their responsibility later moved to Coke and Seoul, but right. at that time it was Japan who was handling this. Sure. And uh, we went on a, a low-key, uh, just look-see type of visit. There was yep. no obligations, nothing. So I, that, that time I went in a completely different capacity. And also, as Coca-Cola, we didn't want people to to know that we were there because Coca-Cola didn't want the publicity. We were we were simply wanted to have a look, so that the in part as part of the planning, we could get a sense of what does it look like. Where would Coke be ser- sold yeah. here? How would it, you know? Right. And the occasion 
was the famous 1995 uh, wrestling tournament. Collision in Korea. The big, the big finale match uh, was uh, Antony... Uh, Inoki. Yeah, the, uh, now no, he's anyway. a member of parliament of, uh, of the Japanese diet versus uh, Ric Flair, nature boy That's Ric Flair. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, so I was there uh, for that. The, the, the foreigners were all seated actually in the, on the, the pitch. If you imagine, a, it, it was like a, a football stadium. Yeah. Um, with the the rink right in the middle and chairs going all the way up to it, so we were right down there. And this was one of the. I mean, I have to say, this is in the Mayday Stadium. Mayday, two yeah. days, one hundred and fifty thousand people, full yeah, yeah. full capacity crowd. And I'll tell you something: the the weird meets weird angle on this huh. is, I tell you, the North Koreans did not know that pro wrestling is all. Fix and entertainment. They thought Wait, what? It, they didn't. They thought it was a real sport. It is, isn't it? Uh, uh, oh, Jack. Oh, oh, sorry, mate. Uh, Mike, you're oh, telling me, Jacko. Is a Kleenex. Okay. Telling me the outcomes are uh, fixed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, they didn't know. There was a certain Japanese, there was a Japanese wrestling, I don't know if it's the Japanese wrestling circuit or a circuit. Yeah, but, they, they uh, have a very, very healthy uh, pro wrestling circuit in Japan. So there were these characters and then Americans, I think, who were on the same circuit. I, 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 I don't know if they came from America or if they no, were. No, it was WCW. And um, I remember as, as with each bout, you know, as you see on television, the, the, um, the stadium would go dark and then the spotlight would come on and the wrestler would come in. And there was one Japanese lady who had like a, literally a three-foot-high blue beehive hairstyle. Wow. And so there's some real characters there. Yeah. And my favorite one, I think it might have been Ric Flair himself. There was an American... Very white hair. Uh, it could have been him. Uh, I forget. Yeah, but he was introduced. The spotlight went on. And this is like a sort of a 75-meter walkthrough. I guess. The, the, the diagonal walkthrough to the rink. Yeah. He's wearing a, a poncho or a cape of some yeah, sort. Cape, yeah, um, And there's this music. You know, and he's doing all these sort of moves. Yeah. And then he jumps up onto the rink. He he throws off his cape to reveal a stars and stripes uh, underpants. Oh yeah, of course. And then he leaps up onto the ropes yep. at the corner, foot on the you know two feet there up on the ropes, yep. and he swivels around to towards a royal box with his hands in the shape of a machine gun, oh my like gosh. a rifle. Oh dear! And I, uh, timed for the moment when the music stops, just and there's. Total silent, 150,000 people holding their breath. And you think, what just, you know, have I died and gone to some kind of weird heaven or something? You know, it was the weirdest um, thing. Of course, the um, the Americans got beaten. And yeah. I, I remember in the, that night in the hotel bar in, in the basement, uh, sitting in a booth, with some friends, because there are a lot of journalists there. Yeah. Who, by the way, I was high concealing the fact uh, that I was with Coca Cola. Ah, I had to okay. sort of hide this from them. Uh, next to us were some of these wrestlers, you know, guys with sort of the muscle on their back of their neck is bigger than my backside. You yes. Know? And they were, one of them was quite weepy. They, the others were sort of consoling him. It's very odd seeing a, a man full of muscles like that, huh. sort of looking like a little girl. And, he's, and I think. He was upset about having to throw his match or something. There was something like that going on. Ah. So it was, 
you know, see, North Korea, you could talk all day. You go there for a week yeah. and you could write 10 books. Yeah. You know, it was like everything was <laughs> unusual and, um, you know, exciting. And Muhammad Ali and was there too, wasn't Muhammad he? Muhammad Ali was there. Um, and As the, a spectator. Yeah, and the North Koreans um, hadn't realized how sick he was, I think. That he had With the Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease, yeah. disease. So he was introduced but uh, not asked to say anything. In fact, they made a point when they induced him to say that uh, he, in Korean they said, you know, his body is not in such good condition, uh, so we won't ask him to say anything. Now, it's, it's been a long time since you've last been there. 25 years have, uh, have gone past, and uh, since then, you, you know, you've written uh, a biography of Kim Jong-il and a book on, on the South Koreans. Do you have any desire to go back to North Korea? Well, I know the the reason I stopped going was, but by the way, through in the nineties, then um, I tried to run a business, and I'm I'm not very good at business, you know. My heart beats like a journalist, you know. And I tried to run a business consulting on North Korea, and got very very embarrassed and let down by the North Koreans. I, I had two trips of very senior about a dozen in each case one of finance people in asia including one guy who asked if he could fly in on his private plane uh, heads career rep south korean representatives of american companies all set to go and in both cases on the eve of the trip i got a message saying it'd been cancelled by the north koreans by the north koreans and fortunately um, most people were sufficiently our relationship was good enough yeah. and they were sufficiently aware of what North Korea is like to not blame my poor relations, government relations skills. Uh, you know, they realized that North Korea is wacky and difficult to deal with. But I thought, okay, that's it. I've had enough of this. And I gave it up. Um, later, I was um, a few years in the, I forget when it was now. When did that book come out? Uh, On Kim Jong-il? Kim Jong-il. Oh, that was a little bit later. Yeah. Um, I actually was writing about Kim Dae-jung, and I called up a publisher and said, are you interested in a book on Kim Dae-jung? He immediately said no. He was the president of South Korea at the time, but I am yeah. interested in Kim Jong-il. So I switched, um, and he wanted it out very quickly, which is why I, I'm not very proud of the job. It was done very quickly because uh, I think I was given th three or four months or something. And so, uh, from a business point of view, I'd lost interest in North Korea. I was completely South Korea-focused after that. And after this book came out, I was advised by another consultant, I don't think you're going to be welcomed up there the way people are talking about this. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'm, I don't need to go anyway. And after that, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm, I'm curious. I'd like to go on a trip and have a look. Um, I feel completely safe. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's only if you do stupid things. If, if you write a book critical about North Korea they're not going to let you in and then pounce on you they're, they're going to not let you in yeah uh, the thing is though if you um, urinate on a poster of the great leader or something or do something similarly stupid you could get into trouble so I think I know enough about North Korea you you learn very quickly about what to do and what not to do all right well that is where we will leave it for today thank you very much for joining me Michael Breen pleasure Jacko ladies and gentlemen that wraps it up for today's episode don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea Our thanks as always go to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll 
for facilitating this podcast, and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the coughing, extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. <laughs>